Good to have you this service tonight. I appreciate your presence very, very much. And um, I normally don't go back and re-preach sermons, so I'm not going to re-preach last night. But I did have something I thought I'd, maybe I ought to tell you because I got to thinking about it more and more uh, last evening. And so I'm not sure if that's called being inspired while you're in bed or not. I don't know. But but uh, that is where I heard, uh, where I, uh, well, that is where I thought about it. I'm going to say it like that. Um, that maybe there were people here last evening who wondered what in the world is wrong with me when I told you that I was losing my faith here a few years ago when I went through these terrible physical things. Uh, and there was a detail that I really should have told you and didn't get around to doing that. Uh, frankly, I didn't think about it last night. After I got in bed and started rethinking the sermon, I was thinking, oh, I, I should have told him that. That might have helped out a little bit in your understanding of how in the world I could have reached such a low point. But in the midst of all the different things that were happening to me with the uh, surgeries and things like that, uh, I had been reduced physically to the place where it was really, really hard to even get in and out of bed. It was quite a process. I, I, I was moving in spaces of about a quarter of an inch at a time, and I had a little routine I'd go through when it was to get out of bed, but it took a long time to get it done. And so I was in the middle of that one morning trying to get out of bed, and and I was leaned over the side of the bed. My routine took me through this little pattern I had that at one point my head was hanging off the edge of the bed and I was looking straight at the floor. And what happened that morning was that when that happened and I leaned over like that, there was a voice. I can't tell you it was audible, but it was real. A voice said, God doesn't care about you. You would think that after all those years of preaching, I could get rid of that in a hurry. But he kept coming back, saying different things. One of the things it said once was, God's gotten everything out of you he can get. He doesn't care about anything else. And believe me, when that happens several different times, it'll do something to you. And it did to me. I just want you to know that, that not only was I going through really, really tough times, but it seems like, the devil had really singled me out for some special attention and did everything he could to discourage me. And believe me, he came very close to succeeding. Thank the Lord that other people who believed in the Lord allowed me to lean on them and they restored my hope and my faith. Well, during the day today, I thought I knew what I was going to be speaking about this evening. And then as the evening came closer and closer, I got more and more uncomfortable with it. And felt like I really didn't have a direction from the Lord on that. It was simply something that I had chosen. And started looking elsewhere. And the Lord this evening, I believe, is asking me to speak to you from the Old Testament tonight. Joshua chapter 3 and 4. And in those chapters, some of the most clear indications of what it's going to be like when the Lord comes back again. We don't really need to be afraid. And I know one of the big questions that people have about this whole business is that when the Lord comes back, are the righteous going to be able to... Uh, escape the turmoil. Well, the turmoil isn't quite the right term for it there, but it, it, the terrible things are going to be happening and all the devastation is going to be taking place and so forth. Will the Christian people have to go through the tribulation or will they not? And um, I'm hoping to be able to show you this evening out of the pattern of the scriptures that we have nothing to fear about something like that. We can look forward with hope for what's going to be happening. In fact, our title here this evening is Hope for the Future. And I'm hoping that when you leave here tonight, you will be, if you have any fears at all, any intrepidation about the coming of the Lord and what it's going to be like, I hope you're able to leave those things right here this evening and go forth in full confidence that God loves you and God wants the very best for you and he will see to it that it happens. And I'll just tell you before I even prove it to you out of the scriptures here this evening that I do not believe by any means at all that Christian people are going to be going through the tribulation. 
It is true, it is certainly true that people have been suffering and dying for their faith even since Stephen, ever since Stephen, and it's also true that people are still dying for their faith today. But I'd be careful to tell you that you need to make a distinction between that and something else I want to acquaint you with. It may look the same in, actually, in, in human terms. It may look the same. But I would admit readily, and we ourselves are going to be going through tribulations of some kinds when it comes to this business of serving the Lord. The Bible does say, yea, all that live righteously in Christ Jesus. No, all that live, what's the word? I've, I've lost it that quick. Godly, that's it. Thank you. All those that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. In some form, in some way, that's going to happen. However, when it comes to the end time and the tribulation time and all of that, there is a distinction to be drawn here. Why would I tell you we're not going to be going through something like that when it appears that people have been doing that ever since the days of Stephen? Why would I be so bold as to tell you that? Because I want you to make a distinction People have been losing their lives for the faith and suffering for the faith because of the persecution of Satan. That's where it comes from. That's the source of it. But when we get to the tribulation period, that is not the persecution of, of Satan. That is the judgment of God. And there is a distinct difference between the judgment of God and the persecution of Satan. When we get to the tribulation time, it's when God unleashes his judgment on the earth. And when you check out the times that God did that in the past, in the earthly experience, you're going to discover that God's people got out before the judgment fell. We can turn to some very familiar passages to prove that, that point. Think, for example, of what Luke chapter 17, in fact, refers to this. It says, as it was in the days of Noah, so also shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. It talks about them eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and having a normal life until all of a sudden it was done. We've forgotten something. As it was in the days of Noah. How many raindrops hit Noah on the head? Zero, right? How do you know that? Because he went into the ark seven days ahead of time and God shut the door. No rain on Noah. And that was the instrument of death. More rain than they could possibly drink. And then it moves on a couple of verses later and refers to another time that God, Jesus, is saying these things. He refers to another time that the judgment of God fell on the earth, and that was in the days of Lot. And it says virtually the very same thing. As it was in the days of Lot, so also shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And it says almost exactly the same thing. They were eating and drinking and marrying, giving in marriage, and all of that. Life was going on as normal until all of a sudden. But we've forgotten something, haven't we? How many raindrops, excuse me, how many fireballs Hit a lot on the head. And what's the answer? None. We may be speaking about that tomorrow night. I'm not sure. But I want to move on from there just to give you those illustrations of instances in the scriptures where the judgment of God fell and God's people did not have to go through that. Folks, if there is no difference between the Christian and the non-Christian, I don't see the point in being a Christian. I'm sorry to have to say it like that. But I take that from the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul said this, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. That's what he said. And I agree with him. There is a difference, and God will make a difference. So if you would, if you have your Bibles not, you may want to turn back there to Joshua chapter 3. Very familiar passage, at least it is to me. I, I'm more in the Old Testament than I am in the New. But the time period we're in here, where this takes place is that we're down to the end of the 40 years in the wilderness journey. And we have the children of Israel getting ready to cross the River Jordan and move into the land of Canaan. 
the promised land, the land they'd been striving for for all those years. And uh, the wilderness journey is about over, and here we're getting ready to cross over. And so let me begin reading for you in Joshua chapter 3, beginning verse 1. We'll be skipping some of this as we move along, of course. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and they removed from Shittim and came to Jordan. He and all the children of Israel and lodged there before they passed over. And it came to pass after three days that the officers went through the host, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall remove from your place and go after it. That translates into this. The ark of the covenant went first, carried by the priests as they were supposed to, and then the people came a little over a half a mile behind it as they moved down toward the river Jordan. And it says here about that space, and then it goes on to say in verse 5, that Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. I need to explain something to you before we go any further here. You've already seen a reference here to the River Jordan. What does it mean? The reason I'm pronouncing it that way, if you look in your Bibles, maybe yours doesn't say it this way, but mine does. It says J-O-R with a punctuation mark, and then it says D-A-N. Anybody else have that in your Bible? Oh, you don't have to look. We won't waste time. That's okay. It's really the River Dan. It's not the River Jordan. It's really the River Dan. It starts in the area of Dan, in the northern end of Israel. That's where it starts. That's where it gets its name. The Jordan is the going down of the Dan. It explains what this river is. So we call it the Jordan, but what it really means is the going down of the Dan. Anybody have any idea what the word, the word Dan actually stands for? Well, it means a judge. Not all of the judges of Israel came from the tribe of Dan, but a lot of them did. But it actually begins back in Genesis chapter um, 30 and verse 6. And that's, uh, without turning to it to, to save a little bit of time, that's when Jacob and his wives were having children. And you'll remember that Rachel couldn't have a child. It, just, it seemed like Leah could just produce children like nobody's business. Uh, however... Not so with Rachel. Until Rachel came up with an idea, which was actually taken from the, the laws of the land, not the laws of Israel, not the laws of God, but from the law of the land. And that was that if a lady could not become pregnant, it was her duty and responsibility to find somebody to have a child for her. And so she enlisted the aid of one of her handmaidens. And so we had this child born. His name is Dan. She calls him Dan. Why? If you turn there and read that thing, you'll discover where she says, in the King James, she says it like this, God has judged me and found me worthy or something like that. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Dan means that God has judged. If you happen to have somebody here by the name of Daniel this evening, your name means judged by God. Dan means judge. And what we have here with the River Jordan, if we say that Dan means judge, then the going down of the waters would be a means of judgment. That's not unprecedented because we have the story of the flood, where in the flood, the waters were the instrument of judgment whereby God brought his judgment on the earth. This is not unusual. When you examine what happens here, what time of the year this is, you will also discover here, if you skip over to the end of the chapter, you'll discover beginning in verse 15, that as they that bear the ark were come unto Jordan, it says the rest of the priests, 
I'm sorry, says the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped in the brim of the water for Jordan overflows all his banks all the time of harvest. It was in the spring. It was a time of Passover. Rain in Israel is seasonal. You have the early rains, which begin at the end of October usually, and go into, October, and go into November and December. Then it stops a bit. And then you have the latter rains, which take place in the early months of the new, of the new year, according to our calendar. And they're usually over somewhere around April. And then you don't get any rain for the rest of the, of the year until you get into the fall season again. Why I'm telling you about that is this. We've already had the early rains. We've had the latter rains. And we have the snow cap on Mount Hermon. That's when this takes place. And it means that the stream, the river Jordan, was flooded. It says it like this. It overflows all of its banks all the time of harvest. Don't be deceived. That's not in the fall. It's in the spring. When the first harvests come out of the field, that's when this is talking about. That's the time of Passover. And so there was so much water here that it overflowed the banks. If I interpret that with what I'm telling you here this evening, it leads me to understand that this is representative of a time of a great judgment. It's out of the normal. It's out of the ordinary. Judgment here is flooding from one side to the other and even out onto the banks. Judgment of all kinds are taking place here. But you know what happens? They've been given instructions. They were told to get behind. We're going to carry the Ark of the Covenant and the rest of you get behind about a half a mile behind and we're going to march down toward the river. So back up with me if you would in chapter 3 and let's see what happens. We finished with verse 5 where it says, The Lord will do wonders among you on the morrow. And then Joshua spoke unto the priests and said, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass over before the people. And they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. So here we're on the way. We're on the way down there. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I have to stop right there and give you an explanation. This to me, this verse to me is prophetic. Joshua comes from the same root word as Yeshua, who is Jesus. It helps me to understand what it says in the book of Romans, chapter 11, verse 26, where it clearly says, and so all Israel shall be saved. The day is coming when Israel as a nation will turn to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They haven't done it yet. But the day will come when they will. I believe this verse is prophetic of that. Some of our modern theologians, even within the Mennonite church, will tell you oh, that doesn't mean Israel in Romans chapter, uh, chapter 11. It doesn't mean Israel. That means the church. I am just silly enough to tell you if it, say, if it meant the church, it would say the church. It says Israel. And God didn't write the Bible for us in riddles where we could decide what's this and what's that. It says Israel. I want to be the last person in the world to ever say it's something else. You see what it says in this verse? Today I will begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I interpret that to mean that just as God supported Moses, who represents the law, he's the lawmaker, right? The lawgiver. Just as God supported Moses 
and made him into what he became. He is also saying, I'm going to magnify Jesus in the sight of the people so he'll be accepted as well. I believe this is messianic in nature here. But let's go on with the story of what happens here. In verse 8, command the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, when you are come to the brink of the water of Jordan, and it's going to be up on the banks because it's overflowing. When they come there, he says, you're going to the river, and you shall stand still in the river Jordan. They had also received instruction that when your foot touches the water, it will disappear. Let me show you what happens here. Let's see. I want to skip down through part of this. Uh, all the way down to... Okay, verse 14. Here's what it says. It came to pass when the people removed from their tents to pass over Jordan. We're underway now. They left their tents and they headed toward the river. Bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. That's what they were doing, the priests were doing. In verse 15, And as they that bear the Ark were come unto Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bear the Ark were dipped in the brim of the water, for Jordan overfloweth all his banks all the, all the time of harvest, that the waters which came down from above, meaning from the north, stood and rose up upon a heap very far from the city of Doms, 12 miles upstream. That is beside Zaratan. And those that came down toward the sea of, of the plain, even the salt sea, failed and were cut off, and the people passed over right against Jericho. Let me explain this to you, folks. We've got the river flowing down through here. And it's a raging torrent. It's in the days before all the irrigation projects to take water out of the river today. It's in the days before they put the dam at the southern end of the, of the Sea of Galilee so they could maintain a reservoir of water for the, for the nation to get water from. It's before all of that. It was when things flowed freely down through the River Jordan. All the water that was, uh, that was stored up and pent up in the north was coming down through there from the early and the latter rains. The snow melting on Mount Hermon was melting and coming down and flooding this whole area. Remember, we're calling them waters of judgment. The Bible says that when the feet of the priests who were carrying the ark, when the feet of the priests touched the water, what happened? The water went away. I don't know how else to say it. Here's what happened. 12 miles upstream, something blocked the water off. And everything that was in the riverbed went flowing down into the Dead Sea and there was nothing left but the riverbed. Nothing but it. You see, we have... Anybody know how many people we have going to cross the river right then? Well, nobody really knows. But if you look in the book of the numbers, you'll discover that there is some counting going on. 600,000 fighting men are counted there. Big debate about when that count took place, but that's the best we can do. So if you give, if you give every fighting man a fighting woman, we're up to 1.2 million. And if you give them a, a scrappy a child or two, you're over 2 million. That's where they get the number from. It doesn't sound very scientific, but that's where they get the numbers from as to how many people were there. Well, how long would it take that many people? A couple of million people. How long would it take them to cross the river? It all depends on how wide of a piece there was, uh, the, the water was dried up in. If it was the width of this room, it would take forever. You wouldn't want to be in that line. And so it was, it was evidently, apparently, a mile or two that would have been like this, 
and they just walked across en masse like so. That's what would have happened. And the question is this. Don't forget the waters are waters of judgment. There is an outpouring of them, which means it's a time of great judgment. And yet when those priests put their foot down, the water's gone. That means the river Jordan, the waters of judgment, were conquered. They couldn't maintain themselves. They were cut off. Now, let me just tell you this. Um, when I was teaching in Rosedale, I had a class that thought I was a heretic, and I'm serious. Because uh, I didn't always say things in the conventional way, and they couldn't quite wrap their minds around that sometimes. I would tell you here, the miracle was not in the water stopping. And why would I tell you that? Because there's been cases already in history recorded that the river was stopped. This is Earthquake Alley. It's the Syrian-African rift that goes all the way down into Kenya. And there's earthquakes that occur. In fact, over the centuries, they say that, if you, that, that the earth has actually shifted 60 miles. One side is 60 miles further north than what it was originally. They can tell that because they go up there, they can find what should match what's down here. So it's an earthquake area. And there have been times of earthquakes where the river was stopped because the banks caved in and it took a while for the water to get itself worked around there. So what is the miracle? The miracle is that God had told them when your feet touch the water, it will go away. And that is exactly what happened. That's the miracle. There are three different times. Let me give you a point of interest here. There are three different times in the scriptures where the waters of Jordan were conquered like that. One, of course, was here. Another one was when Elijah went from the west part across into the east part and took his mantle and divided the waters and went through on dry ground, right? While he was over there, God sent this flaming chariot in a whirlwind to take him up to heaven, but he had a companion with him named Elisha, and he needed to get back over on the west side. And so he picked up the mantle that Elijah had left behind. And he walked back to the riverbed, bank, I should say, and did the same thing, and the water stopped again. Now, the river has been stopped more than that, simply because of natural occurrences. That's why I'm telling you, it's not a miracle that it stopped. That happens. The miracle is, it happened on time. Right there when God said it would. That's the miracle. Now, you want to know something else that's interesting? Jesus, when he came into this world, before he started his ministry, he was going to be baptized. The New Testament tells you, it's in the book of John, maybe other places too, but I'm thinking of the one in John right now. He came to a place called Bethabara. Bethabara is on the east side of the River Jordan, opposite Jericho. That's where John the Baptist was baptizing people. It was the very same place where the waters were stopped so the children of Israel could march across. The very same place where Elijah stopped them so he could walk across. And the very same place where Elijah conquered them and went that way. That's where Jesus came. Even though he could have been baptized anywhere almost, 
He came right there to that spot. And that's where he was baptized. The significance is that the waters of condemnation and judgment rolled over top of Jesus. And they weren't parted. You know the significance of that? The significance of that is that Jesus, that I should tell you something else as well. Look, I don't want to start a controversy of any kind. I don't think I am. Because understandings in the Mennonite church have changed. But we always defended to the death. Well, not quite, Merlin, but almost. Um, pouring is a baptismal, a, a means of baptizing. Our Baptist brothers would always maintain, you know, you got to be dunked. Dunkard Brethren did too, you know. I mean, you got to go under. That's just all there is. You have to do that. I remember one of our own ministers at home preaching a sermon on this one time. He said, when Jesus came to be baptized, he said, Jesus came right down into the water, and he and John waded out in there for a little ways until it got deep enough. And then, and then John reached down and got water in his hand and picked it up and put it on Jesus' head. That's not accurate. Jesus was Jewish. And as such... He knew what it was to go through the ritual bathing of the Jewish people. Baptism is not something new. Baptism comes out of the ritual bathing in the Old Testament. And Jesus and John both were Jewish. And it is certain beyond a shadow of a doubt that when John was baptizing people, he was putting them under. That doesn't mean we have to. If the mode is all that important, it'd be really, really clear. So be baptized with an accepted mode. And that's good enough. It suits me, all right. I mean, that's okay. But I think if you want to be just like Jesus, now before you even ask, how were you baptized, Dale? Well, I was in the pouring age. You know, when they, well, you know how that's done. I'll, I'll start to tell you. I'll tell you afterwards if you want to know. But anyway, that's what happened with, with my case. But I would tell you now, knowing what I know now, that's really not the way Jesus was baptized. He was put under. And the waters of judgment flowed right over top of him. He went to that very place to conquer judgment by taking judgment that was destined for us and it poured over top of him. The very same spot. That's an amazing fact. Well, Oh, this fan has been doing damage up here. Hold on, I gotta find where I was. I'm in Joshua. I'll get it. Somebody wanna sing a song? No, I'll get there before that. Here we are. I pulled the microphone over top of it so it can't flip. All right, let me go back here to where we were. I want to read again in verse 16 of chapter 3. It says, The waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon a heap very far from the city of Dom, that is beside Zaratan. And those, came that, and those that, came, that came down toward the sea of the plain, even the salt sea failed. They were cut off, and the people passed right over against Jericho. By the way, one closing thought on the baptism. You'll read later on in case I forget to read it. But you can read later on in chapter 4. There were, there were stones in the middle of the river that Joshua said to his men, 
12 men, one from each tribe. Go out there and pick up a stone. We're going to bring them up and put them on dry land as a memorial. Well, that's Stone City. There are folks, there are stones everywhere down there. Why would you want to take more stones out of the river and put them up here where the other stones are? Because they look different. After they've been tumbled down and washed over with water for all these ages, they get nice and round. River stones are round. They're not like these jagged things up here on the, on the, on the bank. And so they built a memorial out of that. These brown stones, and put them up there. It would have stuck out like a sore thumb. And the whole purpose was when your children ask you in time to come, what are these stones doing here? You can tell them about when God did what he did. It's a memorial. Not all translations will give you the other side of it, but King James does. And says that they also took stones from the bank and took them out and built a little monument on the bed of the river. And then the Ark of the Covenant moved on across. And it says that when the feet of the priests that were carrying the Ark left the riverbed, the water came roaring back down through there. Now you tell me, were those stones sprinkled, poured, or... Right? These patterns are there. They're biblical patterns. And, and to me, they're there for a very, very good reason. All right. I want you to notice something else. I want you to notice verse 17, chapter 3, verse 17. It says, The priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground. I'm going to come back to what I told you at the very beginning. God's people will not have to go through God's judgment when it falls on the earth in the days of the tribulation. They're not going to go through that. And I base that in part on what it says here. That's a, the, the, it says here the, the priests that were carrying the Ark of the Covenant stood firm on dry ground. Dry. Not wet. Not slippery. Not up to their ankles or up to their knees. I've had people tell me, but surely we must suffer. Well, then never sing again. Jesus paid it all. He did. And when we decide we need to pay part of that, we're going against what God ever intended. It's not that way. He sent his only begotten son as a sacrifice to take our sin so we don't have to go through that. If this thing said, not this thing, if this passage said that they stood there with water halfway up their knees, or even if it was up to here and they were tipping their head up, if it said something like that, then I would agree with anybody that says we need to go through part of the judgment because, after all, the waters of judgment didn't completely dissipate there, and so therefore we must have to do some of that. I'm saying to you, Jesus paid it all, and they stood there on dry ground, dry ground, dry ground. In fact, when you move into chapter 4, there's some language I love. I mean, I know King James is archaic and Shakespeare, you know, I understand all that. But there's some words here that really mean much to me. Chapter 4, it says that it came to pass when all the people were clean passed over. I love that. They were clean passed over. No problem. Clean passed over. The River Jordan, 
the Lord spoke unto Joshua and said, and he repeats the story that I said a while ago, take these stones out of the midst, yeah, put the other stones back in and all of that, that'll be assigned to you. But he talks about them escaping. Let's see if I can get my eyes on that here. Uh, I'm actually falling apart. See, I, the doctor just told me here in the last month or two, whatever it was, uh, Dale, you got cataracts. You got to go to... So far, I've been ignoring him, but he's catching up with me. All right, did anybody see that verse yet? Being passed over, clean passed over and all of that. Here it is. Pardon? Yeah. I've got 11 right here, yeah. That it came to pass when all the people were clean passed over, that the ark of the Lord passed over and the priests in the presence of the people. There's, uh, there's other ones that talk about escaping. That might be the New Testament scripture I'm thinking about right there. But okay, let me come back to this again. It says here in verse 8, the children of Israel did exactly what they were told to do, took the stones out, put the stones back, and all of that. And let me move on now down to um, verse 14. On that day, because of the things that God had done, on that day the Lord magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel. Meaning that Joshua began to assume with ease the position of Moses and the law in the eyes of the people. If you can use that for timing, if you can, that would mean that shortly after the rapture is when that day will come that the Jewish people will understand this whole business of Jesus and he will begin to be magnified in their sight just as it says here was going to happen to Joshua. Skip over a little bit further. Let's see what it says in verse 19. To me, this is important. There are little, it, it, little bits and pieces of information tucked into the scripture that helps us to understand the deeper depths of what we're talking about. There's something here in verse 19. It says, The people came up out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal, in the east border of Jericho. Do you know what that means? The tenth day of the first month is the day of the choosing of the Passover lamb. That's what it is. The day of the choosing of the Passover lamb. Isn't it amazing that our Passover lamb came to that very spot? I believe God wants us to connect this together. Otherwise, why would he put the timing in here? It's a seemingly an insignificant little detail. But the Bible is careful to tell you when it happened. It happened on the day of the choosing of the Passover lamb. Well, it doesn't spell it out. It just tells you what the date was. If you don't know enough about it to, to know that that's the day, you'll miss that. But he's saying this is the day they came up out of there. Their experience with God's judgment. They came up out of there on the very day of the choosing of the Passover lamb. You see, according to the law, you, you chose the lamb on the 10th day and you sacrificed it on Passover on the 14th day. You have the four days of the examination of the lamb. You may be able to examine it physically and determine there's no harm here, there's no scratch, there's no tear, no nothing, but what if you're sick and you don't know that yet? You have to keep it for four days to be sure this lamb is perfect or as perfect as earthly lambs can be in order to offer it as a sacrifice. Have you ever heard why we have the four Gospels? 
In the four Gospels, you have the stories of Jesus. And the four synoptic Gospels equal the four days of the examination of the Lamb. Everything we know about Jesus, virtually, is in John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the four days of the examination of the Lamb so that we know he's qualified to do what he did. Isn't that amazing? All right. Let me just read on just a little bit. Again, it's just the testimony. And those 12 stones, he's just giving it in a conclusion here. They came up out of there on the 10th day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal in the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Then ye shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. So what do you think, folks? God going to make us go through the judgment? And I say to you, no. No, that's not going to happen. It's not. Because Jesus did pay it all. God did send his only begotten son. It's a testimony we give freely. And we can, the most popular verse, I say the popular verse, the most well-known verse in the, in the New Testament. It's not Jesus wept. Even though that one's used a lot of times if you're trying to give a Bible verse and can't think of anything. It's for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. Shall not perish. But have everlasting life. I'm saying to you folks, that is hope for the future. If you're worried about whether or not we're going to go through these tribulations, whether these terrible things are going to happen to us, I hope you can leave here this evening with full confidence that that is not going to happen. It's been a few years ago, I was preaching in a church, and there was a lady there, and uh, her husband, of course, and I knew them before they were married. They've been around a while. And, uh, and, and, and their teenage son the youngest boy was sitting right there with them and he had his girlfriend there with him, with him too. So they're all sitting there. And when I got up to preach and was starting off, while she leaned over, I didn't know this at the time, I didn't see him, but she told me afterwards. She leaned over to him and said to her boy, that man up there is the reason you're here. Well, what in the world do you mean by that? She told me afterwards what, happened, what, what had happened. She said, I heard you speak. She said, first of all, she said, my husband and I, we had two children. And she said, we had decided that with everything that we hear about the end of time, about the coming of the Lord and the terrible times it's going to provoke and all of that, she said, we had decided we're not going to bring another child into the world. We don't want to put a child into something like that. And so we're going to, we're going to call it a family with two children. And she said, we heard what you had to say. Virtually the same thing I told you here tonight. And she said, we talked that over and decided we can have another boy or another child. They know what it was going to be. We'll have another child. That's what she meant when she leaned over to him and said, that man is the reason you're here today. So I turned to his girlfriend and said, thank me. (laughs) (laughs) Folks, I hope, I hope like everything that this makes sense to you.
I've had people leave services like this and say, I hope you're right. I hope you leave this evening and don't say, I hope you're right. I hope you leave this evening and say, I've seen in the scriptures where the biblical patterns indicate this is the way it is. I hope that's what you can do. And I'm hoping that not one person leaves here this evening worried about what's going to happen. Do remember, there is the thing of the persecution of Satan. There is. But when the real end time comes and God sends his forces into the world to execute judgment, you'll be out of here. You really will. Because it's so true, Jesus himself said, we've already talked about it. He said, as it was in the days of Lot. Excuse me, he said Noah first. As it was in the days of Noah. I'll take that. As it was in the days of Lot. I'll take that. Because that destroying angel said to Lot, I can't do anything. Get out of here. Because I can't do anything until you become into that city. And I'm saying to you, that's the pattern for the Lord coming back again. That's the pattern. Judgment cannot fall until God's people are out of the way. And that means you won't go through it. Heavenly Father, I just pray this evening that indeed out of all these uh, things that I've uh, been able to say tonight, out of reading from the scriptures and all of that, I pray, Lord God, there wouldn't be any confusion about what I was trying to say. And from the time that these words left my lips until they landed in the ears of those who have heard, I pray you would have worked a miracle there somehow so that real understanding of what we're saying, what the Bible's saying, is really true. It's really true. I thank you, Lord, for these stories. They're just Old Testament stories. But they're stories that you put there for a reason so that we can know more about you and how you operate and what you're planning to do. I thank you, Lord God, that none of us will drown in the river of judgment. That won't happen. Thank you, Lord God, that Jesus came, walked into the middle of that river, and let the waters of judgment roll over him so that we don't have to, so that we can walk over on dry ground, totally, totally saved. So, Lord God, would you add your blessing? As we leave here this evening, might we leave here with a feeling of confidence and assurance of that special place that we hold in your heart. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thank you for being here tonight. I, I'm, I'm really hoping I haven't confused the issue for you at all, but I hope when you leave, you'll understand God's going to do us right. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Absolutely. Genesis chapter 18. Thanks for being here this evening. And again, when you get on your feet, you're all dismissed. But don't forget, we have services again tomorrow night and again on Wednesday night. So come back, please. Fill the house and bring somebody with you. The Lord bless you abundantly.